0: All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm Josh Patterson, one of your hosts, and with me today is Marty Frederick. He's not out doing whatever other things Marty does, like backpacking.
1: <laughs> How are yeah. you doing, Marty? I'm doing great, Josh. It's uh, it's yet another beautiful day. Although, as I look out the window right now, I see the storm clouds rolling in, so it's going to rain soon. But you know, there's nothing better than a, like the smell of a spring rainstorm. I love that. Sweet. So.
0: Yeah, I agree. We've been happy to be able to like have our heat turned off and our windows opened up and yes. all that good
1: stuff. So yeah, it's,
0: it's been nice. Well, today, dude, like I figured probably we should just kind of jump in with what we have yes. planned because we're recording. We've been doing this Atonement mini series, and so this is our, <laughs> our third and final installment in that. And we have a guest with us today, Dr. Tony Jones, and so I figured we could bring him in and, and say hi to him. What do you think? Sounds it's- great. All right. Well, Dr. Tony Jones, how's it going?
2: Hey, guys. Good to see you and hear you. Yeah. Great to be here. Yeah,
0: Sweet. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking some time to come and uh, hang out with us today.
2: You bet.
1: So, Tony, there's a uh, there's a question that we ask every guest that comes on our show. Uh, It's not really a serious question, but to us, it's like it's pretty important. Um, So, uh, Tony, who is your favorite hockey team?
2: Ah, good question. Uh I'd say the uh the the e, Edina High School Hornets.
1: Nice. Sweet. That's that's a different answer than we've received typically people we've had we've had obviously nhl teams or like you know ahl teams but then we've also had like fictional teams from like tv series and stuff right. like that so can you tell us about the hornets real quick like like yeah one, for like,
2: sure like, i mean i i personally think i think nhl hockey is terrible to watch <laughs> okay. i think it's nothing but stick checks and You know, I think they should for NHL hockey, I think they should open it up to an Olympic size rink and they should play four on four Hmm, or maybe like first period, five on five, second, four on four, third period, three on three or something like that.
1: That'd be interesting.
2: Um, I love college hockey but I'm pissed about college hockey in Minnesota now because they broke up the WCHA and the Gophers joined the big Mm 10 and it's terrible fan. It's empty stadium. Every it's embarrassing. It's terrible.
1: (laughs) I actually went to, I actually went to NMU. So, uh, I went there when they were still in the CCHA and after I left, they do They joined the WCHA, but now I don't think that's going to be even the case anymore. They were talking about moving that around again. So
2: yeah, they're restructuring it again. And of course it's all because of TV deals. So, that's left me to go down the ladder to my local high school hockey team. It's a dynasty team, the best team uh, in the history of the state of Minnesota with, I don't know how many, 11 state championships. Wow. Um, yeah, so I, Minnesota high school hockey, you guys, it's, it's a whole different deal. Um, there was a story from years ago in Sports Illustrated about Minnesota high school hockey tournament being the best – state championship tournament in the country, like better than Indiana basketball, better than Texas football. Uh, It's it's an awesome deal. And high school hockey, man, those kids have mad skills, but they're not so big like NHL players that all they do is clutch and grab and uh, break up. You know, like think of how rarely you actually see a pass completed in the NHL. (laughs) Because those guys, they're so good with their sticks and their skates. They break up almost every pass. Um, And in high school, you just see a ton of really good passing, really, really acrobatic breakouts. Um, You see, you know, forwards back checking, which you don't see a lot of in the NHL, stuff like that. So I I just love the high school hockey game here in Minnesota. That's
1: That's awesome. Awesome.
0: I think, too, we can officially declare uh, you, Tony, perhaps the most knowledgeable person when it comes to hockey that we've had on the show. So that's, <laughs> take that as a big honor.
2: Dude, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I know a lot about hockey. I was a terrible player. didn't last very long. But, um, yeah, I was the student manager and statistician of my high school hockey team, which was the Dinah Hornets. And oh, sweet. We, we won the state tournament when I was there. And then when I went to college, I did some PA announcing in the – it was a, it was a ECAC team at Dartmouth college D one team. So I did some PA in the Thompson arena, but then I quickly shifted over to the radio and then spent the three and a half years of my college career as the voice of Dartmouth hockey doing play by play on the radio, That's which awesome. was like, Oh, I still look back on it. It's like one of the most joyous experiences of my life doing calling, sure. calling uh, hockey on the radio.
0: Yeah. That's- That's awesome. Yeah, you definitely. I think the the person before that was most knowledgeable was David Fitch. We had him on and and chatted with him. He coaches and stuff. But I think you beat him. You beat him out. (laughs) I beat David
2: Fitch. I beat David Fitch at everything uh, when it comes to hockey or theology. The only thing he's better at is uh, memorizing the McDonald's menu. (laughs) uh that's
0: great yeah and i think too it's probably fair to note um i'm pretty sure you guys are buddies right you and dave
2: yeah i mean i haven't talked to him for a long time but i mean for several years but for sure like during the high the high days of emergent
0: yeah the emergent
2: church movement we would speak at a lot of the same conferences cross paths a lot yeah
0: yeah sweet that's awesome man well um Before we jump into our topic today, can you just kind of uh, give us some background uh, for our listeners uh, who might not have uh, encountered your work before? Just, you know, who are you? What do you do? Uh, Maybe a little bit about your faith upbringing, things like that.
2: For sure. Yeah, I grew up here in Minnesota in in the same town I live in now. Uh, It's a suburb of Minneapolis. And I grew up at a a church that, um, and I don't know, you guys, when I was a kid, we didn't talk about. Mainline versus evangelical. Okay. Uh, those terms weren't really used. My church growing up was a funny combination of mainline and evangelical. It's a congregationalist church, but it did not join the UCC denomination when that, when that merger happened in the 50s. So it was an independent congregational church, very mainline-y, but with kind of an evangelical heart theologically. Um, then I went to Dartmouth College, as I already referenced i I got involved in Campus Crusade, which ended up being a huge, uh, very very, very traumatic, terrible experience. Mm. Um, and I went straight after college to Fuller Seminary. Again, not really knowing the theology of the place. Um, I mean, I looked at Princeton, I looked at Union. I looked at Dallas, so that just shows you. <laughs> I didn't really know what I was doing. I ended up going to Fuller because uh, a guy who had worked at my home church as a pastor was a New Testament prof there. And I just wanted to go on the West Coast because I would just been on the East Coast for three years—or for four years. So I went to Fuller Seminary, loved it, absolutely loved it, loved it, loved it. I'm a huge fan of Fuller Seminary, even though my theology is, you know, significantly to the left of probably— their, their faculty for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, after graduating from Fuller, I spent, uh, a few years working for a youth mission organization called youth works and living on the Pine Ridge Indian reservation in South Dakota in the summers doing short term missions. Then I, um, took a job as youth and young adult pastor at my home church in 1997 And that's when I started writing books. My first book came out in 2001 called Postmodern Youth Ministry. Uh, Then I just started writing a lot more books. Uh, After seven years at that church, I went to Princeton Seminary for a PhD in practical theology. Uh, It took me a long time to finish because I kept writing books. And because (laughs) from like 99 through 09, the emergent church movement was like the we were the it boys of the Christian world. You know, magazine covers on Christianity Today and Christian Century. Speaking at every every church conference had an emergent speaker. We ran our own conferences. We had book deals. You know, we were it was a big deal for about ten years. So we had a really good run. I was really really involved in that. Uh, and then that kind of that movement kind of wound down, and I finished my uh, dissertation in twenty eleven. Um, I worked for about 10 years at a publishing house here in the Twin Cities while I was raising my kids. Um, I, I got divorced and ended up getting full custody of my kids. So I kind of uh, moved away from the public traveling life and speaking at conferences every weekend and stayed home and worked as an editor at a, at a Christian publishing house while still publishing my own books like this. Uh, like the, the one we're going to talk about today, which came out in 2015 called Did God Kill Jesus? My book on the atonement. Um, and now I am uh, self-employed again, um, building a brand and doing a lot of writing uh, and started a podcast and stuff under the brand Reverend Hunter. <laughs> so people can find me at com because my my interest right now is particularly in how people find transcendence in outdoors pursuits uh, because that was extremely important to me during a really hard, traumatic period of my life. Um, I ended up, you know, the few preaching gigs I get nowadays are like out in little towns in the Dakotas. And I preach for free in these little churches with 15 members in exchange for them hooking me up with hunting privileges. (laughs) Nice. Uh, Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. I love it. And, So I've done some writing about that, started a podcast where we talk about this kind of thing um, and built out a website and stuff like that. So these days, um, I do a lot of freelance work. I'm on the faculty at Fuller Seminary in the Doctor of Ministry program and uh, have that podcast I reference, plus another podcast where I talk about spirituality and TV shows and write for some outdoors journals and and I'm, you know, working on three different books.
0: Nice. Yeah. That's awesome, man. So you've you've been like all over the place and have done a little bit of everything <laughs> which is really cool. And you you yeah. talked about like all all the stuff you did with the emergent church, and I know uh Brian McLaren was um somebody heavily involved in that as well. He put out a book uh, recently, I think fortress released it about like the Galapagos, the Galapos islands. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And that was like the outdoorsy kind of thing. So I thought of that when you were talking about, you know, Yeah,
2: I actually acquired and edited that book. Oh, sweet. Uh, yeah. When I worked there and <laughs> Brian and I are very close friends and we share, we definitely share a love of spirituality in the outdoors. I I'm more into hunting. He's more into fishing. Um, and then, of course, as you can tell from that book, he's like super into tortoises as well.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, has, he <laughs> yeah. has a bunch of them at his house and stuff, doesn't he? Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's awesome. Sweet. Well, today, man, uh, as you referenced, we're going to be talking about the atonement. And so before we kind of jump in for the series, we've been asking our guests like the same two questions. And the first one is, what are we talking about when we talk about
2: atonement? We're talking about... The cosmic math equation (laughs) that happened between three parties on Good Friday. And those three parties are God, the Trinitarian Godhead, Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate Logos, and humankind... Plus, probably all of creation. You, you might wrap humankind in all of creation. So, what happened between those three parties when Jesus died on the cross? That's what the atonement is trying to figure out.
0: It's a big question.
1: Awesome.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, so what,
1: So then, I guess you know, the, it begs the it begs the second question: Why is this an important conversation to
2: have? Well, it seems to be kind of important to Paul (laughs) what happened on the cross. Yeah, I mean, it's not that important to the gospel writers, honestly. They don't spend any time talking about what happened on the cross. I mean, they spend time talking about what happened on the cross in a historical sense, like telling the story of what happened on the cross. They spend zero time trying to do any hermeneutical work after the fact and say, why was it important that Jesus died on the cross? That's the work that Paul did. And subsequently the church has found it extraordinarily important to continue to muse on that question about why is it important and what actually happened so that, you know, it, according to Paul, as I point out in the book, you know, Paul uses the, the term the cross as basically a, a literary stand-in for the, the gospel. he it, They're one and the same to him. That's not the case, clearly, for Jesus, who talks about the gospel prior to the crucifixion, nor to the gospel writers, because they don't have appendices in which they say now that we've told the story about how Jesus died on the cross and uh was resurrected on the third day now we're going to tell you how that uh reconciles God and humanity but that's Paul is you know Paul's obsessed with that question
0: Yeah yeah, yeah that's man that's really good too there I mean you have a whole section there where you um you know, break down those kind of things. And actually I was telling (laughs) Marty before, uh, before he brought you in, like, um, I read this book like a couple weeks ago and I did it in about two days and then trying to write an interview this morning was like trying to jam pack, like all this wonderful con, you know, content into, into 60 minutes.
2: Um, which what you're basically, what I hear you saying is people should buy the book.
0: Absolutely. A hundred (laughs) percent people should buy the book, uh, because there's so like, um, as man, this is crazy because I'm going to seem like contradictory to myself, but we did a, a, another interview with a guy named Josh McNall. Um, and I thought his book on the atonement was, was great. Like one of the best that I've read. And then this one, I was like, dang, this is like maybe one of the most, uh, like covers the widest. And I think has the most beautiful outcome at the end with, Thanks. with everybody that I read. It's a, it's a
2: fantastic book. Thanks. Well, one of the things I really, I, I, here, here was one of my biggest concerns going into that book. Okay. Was I did not want to be supersessionist. <laughs> sure. Which is, for, for people who don't know that, that's like a, you know, that's a $10 word. What it means, supersessionist means basically people who skip over the Old Testament. Mm hmm and they find they they find the new testament so important and compelling that they don't deal with the old testament or what i refer to in the book as the hebrew scripture the hebrew bible um because everyone who from paul and those who were reading paul the way they understood jesus' death on the cross was always through the lens of the jewish sacrificial system or i should say more technically, the Hebrew sacrificial system. So why was blood and death so important to these people? Why was Jesus' death on the cross um, so significant? What did that trigger in their collective memory as a religious people? Um, And you can't—you know, people ask these questions um, like—these hypothetical questions— Could God have done it another way? Could God have atoned for the sins of humanity doing something else? Which is, these are kind of ridiculous, uh, nonsensical questions, (laughs) but um, people ask them anyway. So the way you get rid of those nonsensical questions is to say, well, why was this so significant? And -hmm. you can't answer that question without looking at Hebrew blood sacrifice and it's importance to the Hebrew people.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, that kind of gets on to like the riff. Paul continuously says in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with the scriptures. And so he's tying in, just like you're saying, tying in that whole old Testament story, the whole, like the whole story of God. Like we talk about, you know, the Bible being one kind of coherent story and Paul's referencing those things and often, uh, we do try to like cut the Jewishness away uh, from a lot of what we do, so um, it's definitely can be annoying. So it's good that you didn't do well, that. Yeah, and it's
2: why <laughs> it's, it's why at the beginning of the book there is a section on understanding uh, the that Hebrew history of blood sacrifice going back to. I mean, you you think about some of it. Like um, I spent some time in the book talking about. Cain and Abel. And Mm. it's one of the most confounding stories in all of Scripture, because Cain and Abel bring what they have. The text even says that they bring what they have and sacrifice it to the Lord. They have no idea that God wants a burnt offering of meat. God does not want grain. And there's nothing in the text to uh like after the fact oh well, they should have known they should have <laughs> known what god really wanted was so i you know consulted rabbis and asked them about this and um i read a bunch of midrash and and talmudic uh, sections on this and it's it, it's a terrible conundrum and then you know the next time we see an a- i mean now, now here's another weird irony the next time we see an animal burned and god likes the smell is Noah and the ark. So (laughs) Noah gets off the ark, and the waters recede. And what does he do? But takes one of those animals that he's just saved, and burns it, sacrifices it, and burns it. And the Lord, you know, and like the the Lord liked the smell of the the burning meat. Um. And then you you may think about that. Think about that. um, Some animal that had been saved. From the floodwaters was then sacrificed for the Lord. So hmm. it, it's a long and involved history um, that I take as you got, as if you've read the book, everywhere from those, you know, primeval blood sacrifices to like the Gilligan's Island episode where Gilligan is dressed up as a girl and they're gonna, the like, guys from the tribe on the next island over want to throw him into the appease the angry Latino. yeah
0: <laughs> i loved when you made that reference i was actually sitting at the table like laughing out loud which is funny because like gilligan's island is just a like a little bit too old for me
2: it's island yeah. yeah i'm
0: i know i look like i'm 16 so just for for clarity well, sake, 20, he's 24 i'm false <laughs> <laughs> I'm 25. Come on. Give me my give me my extra okay. year, Marty I was born in 94. But yeah. Wow. So, I mean, you have that I mean, the first three sexen- sections of your book, which is the first nine, you know, chapters, um really does a great job setting everything up. Um and I'm glad that you referenced some of that because I was going to like skip over all of that kind of stuff to get into the uh the heart of some of these models. But one thing I did want to point out is that I thought Uh, your approach was was really interesting like different people have different ways they do thought you know theology uh some people say sola scriptura some people have the wesleyan quadrilateral or you know richard rohr has his tricycle model um but you talked about this idea when it comes to the atonement of doing a smell test and i really liked that like that uh i don't know that that stuck with me for some reason or or stood out to me and um, you said these two things that I thought were uh, were great. Was one bad theology leads to ugly Christianity? Wholeheartedly agree. And then my favorite though was you have this quote where you say assholes have bad theology, and that's so funny to me because it ties into this idea of passing the smell test because assholes stink. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought yeah, that was you caught so the
2: reference there. That's good. I, you know, I was everything about this book, and I think what I've tried to do in my theological career is take big complex theological ideas and communicate them in ways that are understandable for lay people, people who don't have a ton of theological training. Um, So yeah, sola scriptura and Latin terms like that, I don't find super helpful for people, Mm -hmm. but um, the smell test, you know, everybody kind of understands that it's like, if your theology doesn't produce love in you, if it doesn't make you a more loving a uh, kind person, which is clearly a big part of Jesus' message, then there's something wrong with your theology that that you need to fix. Um,
1: yeah.
2: So you know, it's like you pull a jug of milk out of the fridge after you get back from a two-week vacation, and you you know you open the cap and take a little whiff about like, can I still drink this milk or not? And you know, you know, as soon as you sniff it, you know, you're like, ah. Eh, a little sour, and we all know people—I mean, you you look back to the emergent days, and one of the things to, toward the tail end of the emergent church movement that was, you know, such a big deal for many people and why people were disparaging the emerging church movement is because we were rejecting penal substitutionary atonement in many ways. And then it's what's interesting is that s- several of those high-profile pastors who ran— organizations like acts 29 and the gospel coalition, they ended up falling from their, from their positions of power because they were assholes (laughs) basically because they were assholes and you and I could, we could name their names and a lot of listeners would know those names, but it's like they didn't have affairs. They didn't steal money. You know, they're not like televangelists or whatever. They got fired from their churches because they treated people like shit. Yeah. And you know what I'm saying? Straight up. Marty
0: and I worked at a church where we were treated like (laughs) shit. So (laughs) that's how I met Marty. We know exactly what you're saying.
2: Yeah. And and that just tells me that there's something wrong with your theology if you treat people like shit.
0: Sure. Yeah. No, straight up. I agree, which is why I love the, the smell test bit so much. And kind of like you pointed out, you, um, one of the, the first things you kind of jumped in on, and you actually spent three chapters doing it, is looking at uh, what you called like the, uh, the payment model, or the, the most, you know, one that people are most familiar with. Um, and I think that ties into kind of uh, perhaps where you got the title for your book, Did God Kill Jesus? Because growing up, the kind of like youth group experiences that you described in your book— That was totally my experience. I was told, yes, God killed Jesus. (laughs) And it was presented as like, God hates you. You're like, God's angry at you, blah, blah, blah. So this payment model, what is it? And why doesn't it pass your smell test?
2: Well, I asked this at the end of each model in the book. I ask a series of six questions Mm -hmm. that are meant to kind of drill down a little bit into each model and give an assessment. It's kind of like a test of each model. And it the questions are things like, um, what does this model say about God? What does this model say about Jesus? What does this model say about the relationship between God and Jesus? Mm-hmm. Um, what, and you know, is, is it loving basically is, does it produce people of love is the, is the kind of final question of each. Um, the payment model, it just puts God and Jesus at odds in a way that I think does not jibe with Scripture, nor does it jibe with a common sense understanding of what—if you believe the Trinity is an eternal relationship of love of three individual members in a, bound into a perichoretic relationship, mutually indwelt relationship— um, it doesn't make sense that one of those members would basically say, I'm about to—you know, one of the metaphors I use in, in the book is that it's like God is aiming a gun at us, and then Jesus, like, jumps in between us and takes the bullet on our behalf. And maybe you guys heard this, too, growing up at your youth group, but, like, when, when, God, when God looks at you, he's disgusted. By mm. your sin, because he sees you masturbating in your bedroom. Yeah. God sees it all. But luckily now, when he looks at you, all he sees is Jesus. He doesn't even see you anymore. He only sees Jesus. you right. like, that's terrible. That's First, it's terrible. Suddenly, secondly, it's ludicrous that the God of the universe couldn't see you and wouldn't know— <laughs> You know, like wouldn't know how God made you. And so one other thing I have problematic uh, that's problematic with the payment model is that the the way you the way that we uh, those what's ironic and doesn't make sense theologically is the same people who push the payment model also push God's absolute sovereignty. Right. So it's like God made this entire cosmos and set it the moral universe in motion knowing that we would sin and knowing that he would have to kill his son in order to set things right again. And that's just that just seems totally weird and backward and makes no sense um that God would set things up like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree and there's I mean so many like different uh like metaphors that have been used like I remember one uh, that was used as well as like this idea that uh, with a train track and there was like a baby or something like that on the train track or like or a whole bunch of people or something and then like your son. And so the conductor like pulled the lever at the last moment and it killed his son and saved those people instead uh, things like that these metaphors that just made no sense and like in my mind they like pit God against Jesus. Like,
2: yeah, that's yeah, exactly. As though two members of the Trinity would be at odds with one another or be at war. Basically, it, it it doesn't make sense. There is I think I have it in a footnote or an end note in the book, but there is some Christian music video that's got that railroad analogy. Like they did like a high end film, like a short film of it or something. But you can find it on YouTube.
0: Goodness. <laughs> maybe if we find it we can link it in the show notes or maybe we don't uh either (laughs) either either one i know Ah, goodness well so then it's interesting because one one way that that model has been pushed back against and actually we see this going on right now with this whole like argument that's going on between greg gilbert from together for the gospel basically said hey Matt Bates, Scott McKnight, NT Wright, you guys are idiots, you're wrong. You don't understand the gospel and now there's this whole debate and they accuse them of only looking at what you call the victory model or crisis Victor. Um, as some of us our listeners might know it as. So what what is crisis Victor or or in your words, what is the victory model?
2: Yeah, I mean for, for listeners like I I gave a different name to each of these because penal mm-hmm. substitutionary atonement doesn't really resonate with a modern listener. Christus right. Victor <laughs> is Latin. People don't really understand that, you know, this kind of thing. So that's why I renamed each of them. Um the that that victory model is was very popular in the first millennium of Christianity before the payment model became um the dominant model. And it basically is It's like my my good friend Greg Boyd is Mm -hmm. is maybe Mm -hmm. the most popular proponent of that model these days. Um, And it it says that after Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, the world was given over to Satan's hands, to Satan's lordship, basically. And that when Jesus came down. Look, people can think of the the first book in the Narnia series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, mm-hmm. as like mm-hmm. a long version, a metaphorical version of this theory, the victory theory. Because as you remember, Aslan, um, in order to rescue Peter, right? Or Edmund, Edmund
1: in order to yeah. rescue
2: Edmund from the White Witch... He gives himself, he becomes a ransom captive, right? So he, uh-huh. so Edmund is the captive. Aslan, the messianic lion, says, let me become the ransom money. And the witch, of course, is like, oh, I'd way rather have you than this adolescent kid who <laughs> ate some Turkish delight. I'll take the messianic lion any day. So he then dies... Aslan is killed on the stone table, but what she doesn't know is there's a deeper magic, a deeper magic in that universe, and the, and Aslan comes back basically in a resurrected form and he's stronger and more powerful than ever. Um there's even in the ear, one of the earliest church writings they talk about um I think it's it's in the book, it's either Origin or Justin Martyr think it's origin talks about G- jesus is a minnow who's put on a fish hook and god goes fishing and satan bites into it because mm-hmm. he sees jesus he doesn't know there's a hook in you know or one more reference you guys it's like Carmen's song the champion you, are you with me
0: Yes. Marty is.
2: I am. <laughs> Marty, you got me?
1: I, I'm I'm a musician through and through, so I'm there with you. Remember
2: him. Carmen's song, The Champion, where he's, yes. he starts counting? But he, he's, he, they're like in a boxing ring, and Jesus gets knocked down by Satan, and yeah. then the referee starts counting from 10 down to 1 instead of 1 <laughs> up to 10, and Satan's going crazy. You're counting wrong. You're counting wrong. Because yeah. <laughs> what Satan doesn't know is by Jesus taking this beating – uh he's going to rise up again and be stronger than ever so mm-hmm. it's interesting it, it was it was more ascendant in a world that was rife with spiritual warfare um and in a more scientific rationalistic world like what we live in now it's just it's less you know less resonant with people to to frame the entire um the entire atonement in the spiritual warfare kind of terms.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people I know uh, get tripped out. Like they like the ideas within uh, the the victory model, um, but they don't like like the over anthropomorphized kind of understanding of like Satan and demons and this idea that like God somehow tricked the devil or something like that. They it kind of weirds people out. It's it's too.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: like woo woo for people <laughs> and it
2: people out because it doesn't again the 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 weakness in this model is that you really have to um embrace the fact that God let Satan have a whole lot of agency
0: yeah yeah,
2: did before and still kind of does, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, yeah. talk to us about talk to us
1: about the magnet model and why that didn't pass your smell test.
2: The magnet model was a response by uh, Peter Abelard mm-hmm. to Anselm. Anselm is the progenitor of the uh, the payment model. At least the modern version of the payment model, you might say it, you know it goes back to Augustine or it even goes back to Paul. But Anselm was, you know, wrote this very, very famous book called Why a God Man, Cor Deus Homo. And Abelard was his major theological opponent at the time. And he wrote a responsive uh, treatise basically saying it's ludicrous to think that God burns in wrath against human sin.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: What Jesus meant to do was to remind us how much God loves us Mm -hmm. and that when we look at the cross, it's like we're trapped in the, in the world's strongest electromagnet and it's pulling us toward the love of God. It's such an extreme example of God's love that um, it draws everybody into the Trinitarian love of God. It, it, you know, scripturally, it, it it's tied a lot to at the Last Supper, after Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he says, I have set an example for you. This isn't, mm. you know, giving you a new commandment. And it, it, he, He's very explicit about this. This is an example of love, and I need you to follow it after I'm gone, um, and then the his death shows the lengths to which he will go to show and exemplify that love. It's such a sacrificial love. It's even more intense than washing some dude's feet (laughs) hanging on a cross. Um, So Abelard's theory while powerful, isn't deeply theological, Mm -hmm. not super sophisticated theologically. And it doesn't really deal with Paul's overt substitutionary language. So that's where I love it. I mean, I think it's awesome, but I also think it has weak points. Any one of these does have weak points.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is like being called like moral exemplar, basically. That's mm-hmm. the, the fancy terms. That is um, the fancy I I like your terms better. I'm just going to go on record for saying that. So I'm a full-time high school and young adult pastor. And using this language is way more helpful with students than trying to tell them what, you know, crisis victor, penal substitutionary atonement, like you were saying. So I appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah. And so then the next one, sorry, we're doing kind of like a a marathon overview here um, that you talked about was the divinity model. So what? What exactly is the divinity model of atonement? Yeah,
2: here's another thing you guys could link in the show notes. But there's, I I can email it to you, and you got to link that Carmen video, champion. I will, (laughs) Carmen champion. (laughs) You might not want to give clicks to the atonement train, the penal substitutionary train metaphor (laughs) deal, but let's give let's give old brother Carmen some clicks, huh? Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, the in, in in Orthodox. Eastern Orthodox theology, since they're not Augustinian, they don't accept uh, Augustine's idea of original sin. Right. They just don't have to solve that problem. So they look at the crucifixion of Jesus more as closer to where I land at the end of the book, of Jesus uniting with humans in total solidarity. Okay. So, um, in Eastern theology, you know, somebody once gave me this shorthand, like, uh, for Protestants, the most important day is Easter morning for cat. That's why there's the cross is always empty in a, in a Protestant church Mm -hmm. for Catholics. The most important day is good Friday which is why Jesus hangs on the crucifix in a Catholic church. And for Orthodox, the most important day is Christmas morning, because that's when the incarnate Word becomes indwells human flesh, and God and humanity are united. They have this idea in Eastern theology of theosis, which Mm is human divinity, that human beings are divine, that we have a spark of divinity within us, which is super hard for those of us who were raised in more Reformed Calvinist God's sovereignty, that God is sovereign other, God is always sovereign other. That's not how Orthodox understand God. Mm-hmm. God is much more indwelling human beings. Something happened in the garden that quenched that spark. And when Jesus becomes human, I mean, when God becomes human in the person of Jesus, that spark is relit within each human being. Mm-hmm. um and and Jesus goes to goes to the cross, basically to finalize or consummate that union between God and humankind by dying in the flesh.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, it's that's so beautiful. I remember when I first kind of started stumbling across the Eastern Orthodox. Uh, christianity it made i was like wait a minute so the incarnation actually is like a really cool thing that matters (laughs) and the more i read and i read and i read i was like wow like the incarnation is so big so beautiful like why was i not taught this kind of stuff growing up and uh it kind of ties into i know that people get tripped out and this is beyond the scope of our conversation but uh it kind of lends itself to this idea of like christian panentheism um, which I think has a lot of really big strengths, and that's something I would like yeah. to, you know, maybe talk about on our show in a, you know, later days, Marty. So get studying about Christian panentheism, and uh... huh, okay, okay, <laughs> you're making me
1: <laughs>
0: sweet. All right, well, we so sorry to be, you know, throwing you all over the place, but I want to hit one more and then kind of start asking you questions about kind of what you think. Okay. Um so the the final one that you you lay out in the book is this idea of, of the mirror model. Um so can you explain that a little bit?
2: Yeah, that's like that's a, a real favorite of mine. Okay. And it's 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 based on much more recent thinking, philosophical, theological, anthropological thinking by a guy named René Girard. Yep. It's, it's traditionally called the last scapegoat theory. Um The idea is that the sacrificial system, not only in the ancient Hebrew religion, but in all ancient religions, was a mechanism by which people relieved themselves of their, what he calls their mimetic rivalries, and therefore their bloodlust. So if you if you think about it in modern day let's take a modern day example of this is like a lynching in early 20th century america mm-hmm. if if a town in the american south you know was struggling economically there were divisions and tensions um and it, as we know the north industrialized and the north you know post industrial revolution was very, very prosperous, and a lot of people in the South were really struggling, particularly after the Civil War. The theory go the theory that Rene Girard would put forth is that the reason that a, they would li- hang a black man from a tree is because they needed somebody to blame for their problems. Mm-hmm. And so people would start to cry out, That they, you know, people, the 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 masses had some kind of a bloodlust, and to relieve the tension in their society, everyone would, you know, you some black guy would be dragged out of his house, kind of wrongfully convicted in like a kangaroo court, and then they would drag him out to a tree and throw a rope over and hang him in front of the town as everyone's cheering and the KKK is out there burning torches, and then it would temporarily relieve the tension in that town because they'd pinned all their problems on an innocent victim that they, they conferred guilt onto that victim. It must be the black man's fault Mm -hmm. that things aren't going our way. Mm -hmm. It can't be our own fault. It must be somebody else's fault. So the black man is lynched and it's like serves as a pressure relief valve temporarily. And then, all this rivalry starts to build up again and then somebody else has to die there's the scapegoating mechanism is extremely common in human society and extremely powerful as well yeah yeah so what jesus did according to this theory is he showed that the scapegoating mechanism in sac- that's in inherent in sacrifice is a bankrupt mechanism it does not work in fact what it, it what it, it when the veil when the veil is torn in two and it reveals the holy of holies in the temple it shows that it's empty there's mm-hmm. nothing in there god is not waiting around for the next sacrifice god the lord doesn't care this is not what the lord wants it's not what the lord has ever wanted Um, so the bankruptcy of the, in fact, it's what Gerard says is what, what makes Christianity the most powerful of all religions, because it's, it was the first one to show the bankruptcy of the sacrificial system Mm -hmm. that, that, um, that bloodletting, whether it's an animal's blood or human blood does not appease God's own desire for blood. And, uh, So when we look at—the reason I uh, use the term mirror—when we look at Jesus on the cross, what we're seeing is our own violent tendencies reflected back at us, a reminder that we will even kill the Son of God, the one truly innocent, sinless victim. We'll even kill that person in order to try to satiate our own bloodlust. And, and, uh, he shows that's not the answer. That's not what God wants, and it doesn't actually help relieve violence in society.
0: Yeah, it it reflects the ugliness of of humankind, which Boyd, uh, you said your buddy Boyd, Greg uh, ties that in a lot to his like the whole cruci you know crucifixion of the warrior god bit. Yeah, um, with the the reflection of of human ugliness and God allowing Himself to be you know put forth in those terms. But also too, just a super. Con- I mean, like right now, today we can see scape- scapegoating happening, i.e., China. <laughs> Everybody, oh, yeah. right, with the coronavirus, yeah. the president, whoever, you know, whatever, blame the Chinese. That's who's to blame, and it somehow unites us because now we have a them. It's their that's fault. Right. It's their problem. They started it. That's who we ha- That's who we hate, and it brings people together, which is crazy. But yeah.
2: yeah, or or the fact that even before coronavirus, um, the fact that the US was losing manufacturing jobs, it's not because of uh globalization and global forces, it's because of the immigrants. Yeah. You know, it's because it's it's because of brown people. So let's close the borders and save our jobs. When you know, there's always a scapegoat. It's so much easier to scapegoat the other than it is to take responsibility yourself.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, Americans have a history of that. I mean, it goes all the way back to you know before Americans were Americans and coming here and scapegoating Native Americans. Um, and you know, I mean, just I mean, it, there's it's it's a constant swing throughout history that never really goes away. Um unfortunately, although we may not have as many records of it, I would not I would venture to guess that it happened even before Jesus <laughs> was, was put on the
2: cross. Absolutely. Um, oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, so I guess then to kind of go uh, to move on from there as we're talking about the cross, uh, I guess the I guess to kind of wrap things up, the, I think the big question is like, well, what did happen on the cross? Like, what does the cross tell us about Jesus?
2: Well, it's on page two hundred and thirty. <laughs> My Got book,
0: it. it is. It is. <laughs> yeah. That's true. You know,
2: here's where I come down. I, I'm obviously very fond of the Eastern Orthodox model, and I'm very fond of Rene Girard's uh, model. Um, and what I, what I land on is basically this. I mean, uh, there, there's bigger issues at play that people will have to uh, read the book to understand. But yeah. my, my model only works if. For instance, God is not eternal. God is everlasting. God is not outside of time, but God is inside of time experiencing time with us. Mm-hmm. And that the history of God's relationship with human beings is a progression of self-limitation. So from the beginning, God self-limited in the, in the creative moment— of creating the cosmos, that God withdrew God's self, drew some kind of boundary around God's self to allow there to be an other to exist. And we're the other. All creation is the other. And then that God's, I mean, I'll just give one quick example from the Hebrew Bible. Um, Samuel says to God, Israel wants a king. All all Israel's neighbors have kings. Israel wants a king. God says, tell them they don't need a king. I'm their king. Three times, this goes back and forth. Samuel goes back to the people. Hey, you don't need a king. The Lord is your king. No, we want a king. All our neighbors have kings. How can we not have a king? We can't have some invisible king. But back and forth, back and forth. Finally, God says, okay, I'm going to let you have a king. The king is Saul. Saul's a terrible king. You know, very (laughs) flawed human being. Uh, David is also a flawed king. Solomon is probably the best king, but even he is, as we can see in his writings, depressed, most likely depressed. That's, an, that's one of many examples through God's history with Israel where God limits God's self. God does not operate like a sovereign would which is another kind of chink in the armor of, of reformed, like hardcore reform theology. Yeah. God limits God's self and retreats and says, okay, I'm going to let you, I'll let you all have a King. It's not going to go well, but if you want one, you can have one. I'll let Saul be your King and God withdraws again. And God withdraws, withdraws, withdraws till we get to the, you know, last verse of the old Testament and God goes silent for 420 years. Before God makes a new appearance in announcing the birth of John the Baptist and then announcing the birth of Jesus a few months later um God's so God's doing two things in Jesus limiting God's self to the most radical extent we can ima- imagine by actually encasing God's self in human flesh and also showing complete solidarity with the human condition by becoming human this was a huge you know stumbling block to use pauline language (laughs) and foolishness because the jews didn't understand why yahweh the god of the universe would become a human being and the the hellenists paul met with on um mars hill who understood a very Platonic, ideal, immaterial, spiritual-only version of God, also did not understand how would God of the universe become—God is pure mind. Why would God become encased in human flesh? It didn't make sense to the Jews or the Greeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't make sense to Augustine as a Manichaean. Like, he really struggled with this. Um, so— I think the way we then reconcile it is we say it's God's—and Paul sings about this in Philippians 2—it's God's ultimate act of humility to become human to the point of even dying on a cross to show complete and utter solidarity with humankind. And then I finally make the theological leap to say, and God learned something in this encounter. Mm -hmm. God learned something about— the human beings he had created, what their life was really like by experiencing the same depth of suffering and pain and abandonment and isolation as they have. And we see that come to a head in the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which I argue in the book is the single most important theological phrase ever uttered.
0: Mm. Yeah, which for sure passes the smell test. Like, that's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so great. And I think, too, for, you know, a bunch of questions that have, might have been raised in the heads for people. I know we're about to do an episode with uh, Richard Rice on his latest book about, you know, open theism, um, which t- ties into a lot of what you're saying in your model, yep. which is, is a great thing. Um, it, I, have you interacted with, like, the work of Thomas Ord at all? dude
2: yeah he, for sure I know Tom yeah mm-hmm.
0: he, yeah Tom's a great dude he's been on our show a yeah. couple times and he's just you know an awesome friend somebody uh, also to look into listeners if if you're interested in, in finding ways to help understand everything that Tony just laid out for us uh, places like that would be a good a good place to to check into but Tony this this has been an awesome experience man I really uh, appreciate you coming on and talking to two dudes you've never heard of before <laughs> yeah
2: no, no, it's my uh, pleasure, and I really appreciate you guys, like, reading the book and taking it seriously, and, um, you know, I hope it stands the test of time. One one thing about the atonement is that there was no, no early church council ever decided on one version of the atonement or the other. Like, I don't think you can be a Christian and reject the Trinity. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can be a Christian and reject the dual nature of Christ. Um, but I do think you can— be a Christian, and have one or another or a combo version of the atonement.
0: Yeah, most definitely, absolutely. And uh, real, just anecdotally, something I thought was funny, um, I had your book in my cart on Amazon for a long time, like a really long time, an embarrassingly long amount of time. And I watched uh, some film where they, uh, man, they like had you, briefly talk about, did God kill Jesus? And then Kevin DeYoung was like, yes, God killed Jesus. And I was like, I'm <laughs> buying that book right now. <laughs> and that Kevin is DeYoung. when, I, that is when I bought your book. So you can call Kevin and say, Kevin, thanks. You know, because Amen. now.
2: <laughs> if God can speak through Balaam's ass that he can even speak through Kevin DeYoung or that crazy auntie, that crazy movie that was. Pro penal substitutionary atonement.
0: Yeah, man, That's funny. That was a rough one. And um, <laughs> we actually, man, we did an episode on that film a lot, like early stages of the show, and we had a different uh, ho- co host. Marty was not on. The co host was uh, a buddy of mine who is super reformed. Um, and so that, man, but I struggled with that film. <laughs>
2: I bet. Yeah.
0: Anyways, Tony, thank you so much. Where, where can people go to find you? Obviously we're going to, we're going to link your book in the show notes. Uh, people well, by did God kill Jesus. It's a great book. There is thanks. so much that is packed into the pages of this book that we didn't even get a touch on today. Um, yeah. we could have talked to Tony for like hours, <laughs> but he's a busy dude.
2: Well, so, I'm happy to come on another time and continue the conversation. People oh, can find me at reverendhunter.com. Um, probably if they just google reverend hunter it's going to sh- come up all my books are available there on my website um if you want to find all my old uh blog posts back when i was blogging a lot about the atonement you can find them on patheos mm-hmm. there's there there's archived there um but yeah i'd love to hear you know if any listeners uh find me on social media and want to drop me a note or whatever contact me through my website totally open to corresponding with people stuff like that
0: sweet man Well, this has been awesome again. Thank you so much uh, for your time and um, whatever things you have going on. I wish you the best with them. Thanks. uh, We would love to have you on again. This was a great conversation. That'd be
2: great. Thanks a lot, guys.
0: Sweet man, take care. And listeners, uh, go Caps. And go Blackhawks. And also the team that Tony said.
2: (laughs) The Dino Hornets.
0: Dino Hornets. There we go. All right, go Hornets.